0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I'm your girl, Jacqueline, back with another very fun, slightly tumorous episode alongside my (laughs) co-host, Mr. Mark Ellis. How you doing, sir?
2: Is that me? Is is that how you refer to me? Because my birth sign, I believe yours is as well. Are we not both? We're yes. actually both cancers. So we are we, both
0: cancers. We have upcoming so birthdays
2: funny. and yes, we're very yeah. excited about it. We might do a joint birthday celebration. Jackson was telling me off air, maybe there's some shenanigans that happen in July. We'll get to that when we get to it. But this is also a very exciting, I will say very non-benign episode of Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong.
0: Yes, very non benign episode, but in the best way, because today we're talking about the fan favorite Oscar finalist, Malignant. And we have a guest uh, today who brought this one along and I cannot wait to get to talk to them about it. But first, let's get down to business. So 76% certified fresh is the score on Malignant. 52% 52% rotten audience score, which is interesting.
2: So I feel like the critics aren't necessarily wrong. I don't necessarily blame the audience either. So I'm a I'm a fan of both parties here with Malignant, although I did enjoy the movie. Jack, what, do you think Rotten Tomatoes is right or wrong with that 76%?
0: the critics got it right. And I would say, honestly, the audience did too, because I don't think this is a film that most audience people are going to like. Like if I can divide it up as its will, I enjoyed this. I understand why 76 percent of critics did it. But I do think that if you are not a horror person, you are just not going to dig this. (laughs) So like I don't even blame those 50 percent of people to write. So I would say Rotten Tomatoes is right about both. And today we have a guest who is a filmmaker Honestly, just a fabulous person from what I was able to see from the film, but then I also went on their Instagram and saw even more. We're talking to Peaches Christ, a drag performer and horror filmmaker who just recently did the film All About Evil starring Natasha Leone, who is I think the internet's fave right now, like she unseated Timothy Chalamet, both of which are <laughs> out on shutter uh and Blu-ray, Natasha and the film. So Before we go ahead and dive too deep into exactly what was going on with Malignant, let's get Tim to break down for us what the critics were saying with our favorite segment, Two Minutes with Tim.
1: Psycho. The Usual Suspects. The Sixth Sense. A great movie twist can send audiences reeling, questioning everything they saw before the big reveal they didn't see coming. For the most part, critics liked the audacity of Malignant, praising it as a movie that starts off as a well-executed genre exercise before taking a major turn. However, the audience was a lot more split. Malignant is certified fresh at 76% on the Tomato Meter, but it has a 52% audience score. So what did the critics have to say? In a fresh review, Hannah Flint of Empire Magazine wrote, There's a hodgepodge of ideas going on that don't always seamlessly fit, but Juan's homage to 80s horror and Wallace's fretful performance has a bloody lot of guts. However, in a rotten review, Jude Dry of IndieWire wrote, When you're taking this many wild turns, it's better to just lean into the fact that you've made a ridiculous horror movie than to try to make a serious drama. The Rotten Tomatoes critic's consensus reads, although Malignant isn't particularly scary, director James Wan's return to horror contains plenty of gory thrills and a memorably bonkers twist. So that's Malignant. Let's kick it back to Jacqueline and Mark, neither of whom are named Gabriel. Back to you, folks.
0: So why don't we go ahead and open up our movie talk section now. Brian, cue the music. I just have to ask you, what are your thoughts on Malignant? I think I know as the horror filmmaker that you are and how and now having seen the film. But tell us, what do you think about it? And welcome to the pod
3: thank you thanks so much for having me um yeah my thoughts are that well honestly i was late to the game which is unusual because usually when something in the horror community is getting a lot of buzz you know i i check it out um i might be a few months late but this one i was pretty late like i saw it recently and it blew me away and i was filled with shame over my, um, (laughs) my tardiness to the party. Um, Yeah, no, I thought it was brilliant. I think it's amazing. And I think part of the reason that I didn't rush to see it is because I thought I knew what this filmmaker was going to deliver. And I was wrong. You know, this, this really, really impressed me just, just for its sheer audacity and originality.
0: Oh, I love that so much. All right. So let's go ahead and start with this one. Like, let's just go ahead and start with, horror in general, like, I guess you really like horror, but who's your favorite horror filmmaker?
3: Oh, my favorite horror filmmaker. That's interesting. Usually people say, who's your favorite filmmaker? (laughs) Um, And so I would say John Waters, because I grew up in Maryland and the discovery of John Waters really changed my life. As much as there are horrific elements in John's films, I wouldn't describe him as a horror filmmaker. So uh, I would have to say Wes Craven. Wes Craven and, you know, the creation of A Nightmare on Elm Street and then his redefining the genre multiple times, you know, mm-hmm. um, I still think that he has not been given the credit he deserves for the Met film, you know, entry, um, New Nightmare, uh, you know, just kind of leading the way, you know, so many knockoffs, but we, we don't give him the credit. And of course, you know, Scream was another time that he basically reinvented the genre. And. You know, kind of the you know, the the
2: success of Scream continues today. I love that you made the point about Wes Craven's new nightmare because it somehow gets lost in the shuffle of all the other nightmare on Elm Streets, but we get to see we get to see the fun Freddy on the surface, but then we also get to see like a darker, like, oh, that's the guy. That's the guy that everybody's really afraid of. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that with James Wan as a filmmaker, and when you watch Malignant, you see elements of of that kind of wink and nod to the audience that we know that what we're in for, we know what kind of movie we're making, but I just wonder about the disparity of this movie, because like Jacqueline said, 76% certified fresh on the tomato meter, but it's one of those rare films, especially for horror, I think, where the audience score is much lower. It's only 52%. And so I, I'm not going to get in my feelings about that. I, I think that those are, two fair numbers, I just thought they would have been reversed because the whole point Uh. of this movie is that we're making an homage to like B movie and like, like kind of slashers with a twist. So if you're making an homage to a B movie, you can't really expect it to be an A, you know, decades later, but I still am just curious for your take peaches on why the critics would be giving this movie a fresh rating, whereas the audiences would think it's rotten.
3: OK, I, I'm glad that you asked because uh, I think I, I, I think I know the answer um, uh, as a drag queen who's also a, uh, a long um, time horror person and have been doing both of these things uh, for over two decades. I mean, I know to look at me, you would never guess it, uh, but I have been in the game a long, long time since I have been doing horror and since I've been doing drag. Those two things have exploded in popularity. When I started, they were very, very niche. Uh, they both—they were both uh, sort of underground uh, subcultures uh, with hardcore fans. And I think James Wan, in many ways, represents a lot of the popularity and the explosion of horror. And he's created some of the most successful and popular. Um, horror franchises and I think he did it and I'm not going to say anything negative because I, I I do, I do think he's a talented filmmaker, but I will say this, if uh, he's, he's the horror um, answer to RuPaul's drag race, you know, as far as, as, as the popularity goes for, (laughs) for drag these days and as a hardcore punk satanic drag performer, you know, there is part of me that's a little bitter when these things I love so much become so popular. So lignant was not for the masses it was for the horror fans it was for the horror community and so you've got critics who understand horror they understand the roots of horror they understand camp they understand what where b movies are they know what giallo is Um, And then I think you've got a lot of James Wan fans for better or worse who are tuning in. We see the same thing with Drag Race. They tune into someone like me and they go, that's not drag. And it's like, oh, actually, no, it is actually (laughs) really drag. You know, the TV version that you're a fan of is just one version of it. And I think with James Wan, in many ways, I I really applaud him because I think he said, oh, wait, look, I can do this too. And, And so in many ways, I actually think the lack of a higher score from the audience, who cares? (laughs) You know, I mean, in some ways it it makes me like it more.
0: I agree with you on that. I think there's an undercurrent with this one too, which is, it is a James Wan movie, but there was a lot of folks he brought into this that were, I would say, not typically people that James Wan collaborated with. Akilah Green being the co-writer on this one, being one. And I do feel that this film is way more... I don't even know how to say underground than even James intended when he was bringing it out. But then Warner Brothers marketed it like it was just another part of the James Wan, very poppy universe. Like, I don't know, Mark, what about you? Did you remember the marketing for Malignant? Like, did you feel like you got the bait and switch when you finally saw it?
2: I don't remember the marketing for malignant. Like yeah. it, it I you know, I, I can I can remember the marketing for stuff like The Conjuring or Insidious, like your more sort of mainstream horror movies that that Peaches is talking about. But for Malignant, I remember it just appearing one day on streaming and and it was one of those films that came out in theaters the same day it was streaming and I think that's part of the reason for the less than stellar box office results because the movie Mm -hmm. pulled in I think 34 million on a budget of 40 million it probably made that up with whatever streaming measurement you want to uh, calibrate but I just remember seeing it and like at home, and I'm like, oh, okay, I should probably watch this because I like James Wan. I love horror movies. Let's see what this one is. And it did take me for a ride. It took me for a surprise. And 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 just when you think about that low audience score, Jacqueline, it, I, I think maybe part of that is that it's a tough first act to watch just from a domestic violence standpoint. And so maybe that's something that audiences just weren't prepared for, particularly with what Peaches was saying with the James Wan movie, where we know we're going to get like, or we think we're going to get ghosts and goblins and ghouls in some sort of haunted house movie. We weren't expecting anything that visceral.
0: Yeah weren't expect anything that visceral. And you're right. This movie at the beginning is almost it, it's almost like an extended version of what they did with Scream and what Alfred Hitchcock did with Psycho um, in the sense of like, there is nothing about the beginning of that movie that actually matters other than the scene that you forget about at the very, very beginning when you're seeing that like Gabriel <laughs> character, like anything after that does not matter, except for the fact she hit her head. Everything else is just a complete bait and switch. And it's actually a technique called, um, it's this technique. uh, It's almost like lampshading. It's like, there's something going on that you focus the audience on and it is only so that you can tell them information that they won't necessarily grasp as expositional. I don't know, Peaches, you could talk about like the techniques they use in this because they use so many, like I would say old school Argento, Cronenberg I would even say going back to the like the trauma days of horror like they use so many of those old school sort of plot devices in this one if you can maybe talk about which ones maybe you liked that they used
3: Well I th- I think that you really brought up the 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 thing that was the most effective for me you know and I think as 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 a horror fan a hardcore horror fan who sort of ingests this stuff and has been for so long and watches a lot you know uh I was tricked you know, and, you know, I think that that was one of the things that impressed me the most is I was totally on that journey of storytelling and, you know, the domestic violence, um, you know, I thought was going to be a, mu- a much bigger uh, part of what was what was going to play out. And the fact that, you know, by the end of the movie, I wasn't thinking about, you know, her being slammed into that wall, you know, and and. And then when it all start, started to kind of come together, I mean, I my jaw was on the floor like, oh, my God. And I was my heart was racing and I was excited because it worked. You know, yeah, it, it was like a. It, in many ways that there are movies that sometimes feel I love haunted attractions. I love theme parks. I love you know, thrill rides. And I feel like this movie, there are some movies that just feel like I'm in a dark ride or that, you know, I'm having that experience that it's so exciting that uh, I feel like it's all around me. And, I, and that this movie did that for me. And a big part of it was the storytelling, exactly what you're saying. The bait and switch really worked.
2: I think I won, Jacqueline. I think I won because just hearing an expert like Peaches Christ who makes horror movies for a living say that it surprised them. Cause like I, I always, as, as our audience knows, I'm a moron when it comes to watching movies and predicting what happens next. And every time there's a horror movie, I know that that first scene is going to mean something later on. And so I sit down and I focus and I'm like, okay, this is going to mean something later. Five seconds after it's over, I'm just like, I'm just floating in La La Land and I can't remember anything that happened. And so it was just so rewarding for me to be stupid. like Ignorance was bliss watching this movie because there was I was just hanging on for dear life, seeing all the twists and turns that we were taking and then to have it all wrap up and just to have it validated that I was not the only one who was just trying to play catch up with the movie the whole time, that that was actually the intent. This this is already, I'm playing with house money at this point, Jack.
0: Yeah. Um, It is an interesting thing, too, when you look at this movie and and its reception, because as much as I like to say that it was a movie that was like disliked, the 50 percent is actually pretty accurate. But what's more accurate within that is it's 50 percent that feel very strongly. Those 50 percent are not wishy washy. There's not people that I think (laughs) watch the movie Malignant and they're like, you know, I don't know how I feel about that one. No, you know. (laughs) you know how you feel (laughs) like immediately within the first five minutes, you probably know how you feel about the movie. And that opinion may change by the time you get to the end. And I think that's the real power of it. The movie immediately makes you like have to make a choice on like, am I in this or not in this? And if you're not in it, I think those people bail out before they ever figure out what the actual movie really ends up being in the end. I I I don't know if it didn't start so shocking if it would have been able to hold the twists the way that it does in the end. But Peaches, I'll take it to you. What were your favorite sort of moments from it? Because looking back on it now, besides the fact that I couldn't figure out who that kid was, and I figured out later he was the villain from the per- first Percy Jackson movie. <laughs> seriously, watched that scene three times trying to figure out who that dude was. And I was like, ah, it's the villain. He's per- he was Hermes. Other than that, that scene to me is probably one of the best scenes ever in cinema or like everything in that moment, because it is probably one of the smartest things I've ever seen written for what it does later.
3: Yeah, I agree with you completely. And also just to piggyback on what you're saying a uh, really quick before uh, favorite scene, you're so right. That 50 percent, that really, really matters because that's a 50 percent of people that, that that didn't passively give it, you know, a thumbs up or a fresh rating. These are passionate. People. And as someone who programs cult movies and is in the business of celebrating cult movies, I can tell you that in 20 years, if they screen malignant, there will be an audience and very few horror movies coming out today, I can confidently say that in 20, 30, 40 years, you screen this movie and people will show up. So it doesn't all, all, sometimes it doesn't matter what the actual percent is, it's how passionate people are about it. And this movie will be kept alive, you know, for for, for decades because of that passion. Um, and then of course, I mean, I don't want to, I don't know what, how you feel about spoilers. So I'm gonna dance uh, Oh no, dance we're a spoiler
0: there. show. So like anybody <laughs> coming to this, if you haven't seen it, Tough titty, yeah, as my I mommy mean, would say.
3: Wow. <laughs> yeah. Tough titty. Okay. Well, the best scene, I mean, to me, is just the the revelation at the end and the the gore effect of the uh you know the face appearing <laughs> like just when when your whole um brain is melting, you know, kind of going, oh my god, I did not see that coming. That is so exciting, and you know that that sort of you know the the connecting with like you said the connecting with that that uh kind of innocuous moment of domestic violence at the beginning that's that's really you know uh presented in such a way that you don't necessarily pay attention to the importance of it you know the fact that she's uh you know pregnant and you know, there's so much else going on that you're not thinking about did she hurt her head you know mm-hmm. um it's amazing that 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 moment is so great i mean on And we're talking about many, many great moments in the movie. But that moment, of course, is why so many
2: of us, you know, are going to watch it in 20
3: years.
0: Yeah, no, I really do love that. Mark, what about you? What's your favorite scene?
2: Well, I appreciate this movie for many different facets, not the least of which is that it might be the best Seattle based horror movie since the original The Ring. And because I love my family in Seattle. I love touring, telling jokes up there. And watching this movie, I had no idea. And I don't know if it's real. I, I think it is. There's like the Seattle Underground tour that you can mm. take. It's that, like all this like old stuff in Seattle. And so that was interesting from a historical pr- perspective for me. But the turn for me in horror movies is always, when do I stop rooting for the humans in favor of the plot continuing? And it, mm. be, because I actually do care about a lot. Like there's always one human in a horror movie. You're Like, okay, we can axe that one. But then this poor person who's just taking us through the Seattle underground. Like I knew something was going to happen because James Wan is so good at building a mood in a horror movie and kind of letting you know, hey, something bad is right around the corner. But I was kind of pulling for her to survive. And then I'm like, nah, you got to go because I want to see the next scene. I want to get scared again. I want to see the next development. I want to start peeling the layers of this onion back. So I thought that that was just the, the best version of James Wan and the what what he does for a horror movie, I think was in that scene.
0: No, I think, I think you're right on, on, on as far as the James Wan of it. Like mm-hmm. what he's able to, I think, kick into overdrive when it comes to these, you know, chasing down a hallway scenes. Like just the visual image of the Gabriel character is something that has to be born out of the mind of a master horror maker because yeah. it is borrowing elements of so many different, I would say like horror movie moments and just doing it so, so very well. The other thing too that I think doesn't necessarily get talked about in the mainstream is there's a real like LGBTQ heartbeat in malignant peaches which I thought you this was such a great choice for you because I talked to a few of my friends and they were like what's really interesting is like you could absolutely see this written by an LGBTQ filmmaker because in a certain respect the Gabriel characters how they feel identity is like I could definitely see this being a film that resonated with you know people coming out or transitioning or any of that stuff because there's this moment where it's like the Gabriel character comes out to protect her. She's in a moment of like her worst despair and this thing that's been living inside her that whether she realized it or not, in some ways has been saving her. Because as we see this guy beat her up, you think, Well, God, if you would have had a baby with him before, you would have been trapped by this that's, man. You're you know what I mean?
3: Absolutely a hundred percent correct. You know? And I know this is this may come as a shock to you both. Um, but I I don't wake up as peaches and I, um, you know, I actually look quite different than the glamorous glamazon you see before you. (laughs) Um, So I, um, I definitely have created a character in many ways. That is a a suit of armor. And I think a lot of queer people, a lot of drag performers, a lot of people who struggle with being in the closet um, with hiding parts of themselves, Um, And not just queer people, but, uh, you know, it can, can, you know, speak to um, all sorts of folks, you know, who have those feelings. But certainly that's a queer narrative. Um, Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. The duality. You know, like I often talk to Cassandra Peterson about mm. how the fact is we we have lived as two different people, you know, and and as it gets longer and longer, you know, she being Elvira and me being Peaches Christ, you do. The lines are really blurred. And yeah. this thing started as a as a fantasy, you know, of darkness and horror. And then it sort of seeps into your 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 regular life. So, no, I think you're right. Malignant definitely speaks to that duality and and, and the closet, quite yeah. frankly.
0: Absolutely. And I also want to correct the record real quick. I said Akilah Green. It's Akilah Cooper. There's two black there's two black women uh, genre writers and they're both named Akilah. Forgive me, sis, but (laughs) (laughs) they're spelled differently. But they're two. They have the same name. I'm like, seriously, y'all are making it difficult. But anyway, no, she wrote this one, which I think is interesting, too, because I don't know her identity. But like I said, there's just such a like heartbeat of Hey, this thing inside me which everyone else thinks is wrong is actually what is probably going to save me from real horrors until and you guys may see it as a horror movie, but I think that's like where we get the like multiple twist endings because there's so many ways that Gabriel ends up by the end of this movie and and we can sort of like break down that one a little bit more. But I don't know, Mark, for you, what was um I guess you talked about you hadn't seen it before what do you think the people who hated it were thinking? Do you like have an idea as to what about it they were like not about?
2: I I, I think that there's like anytime you're talking about a film that echoes some Cronenbergian, you know, references and tro- visuals, I think in a modern era, I think that can throw people for a loop. Mm. And I think that this movie if it sets itself up to be like we're chasing this slasher that may or may not be a ghost that may or may not be alive and then it turns out to be something really really different and so this is, there's curveballs and then there's like screwballs, you know, mm-hmm. like, like like people know how to hit a curveball, but a screwball, a spitball, screw a forkball. Spit fork it's like, what the hell is this thing? This was like you're up at a major league plate and, and the pitcher throws a wiffle ball and you're yeah. like, I have no idea how this is. Th- this is going to get over the plate, but it does for me anyway. But I think a lot of folks were just kind of it. it maybe it took a different turn than they were expecting. And I think sometimes people. They, they do go in with their expectations and they want them met to a certain degree regardless of whether it's like I thought this was going to happen and this happened I think that they at least went in expecting a style of horror movie that they ended up not getting but part of I think the appeal of James Wan making this movie is that I bet James Wan knew this was going to happen I bet James Wan knew this was not going to please everyone mm. and he wanted to do something like, like Peach's intimated earlier it's like this isn't necessarily for the masses I want the hardcore horror fans to know that I see them and that I honoring what we all grew up on.
0: That's very true. What's interesting is I wonder if he thought, because James Wan has had a ton of horror films that did not do well critically, but had great audience scores. And I don't think it's that different from Malignant other than the fact of it just leaned in more. So I wonder like, yeah, it's very interesting to see this like, as Peaches put it, he very correctly identified what James Wan is in the horror community. He is very out there and people love him because he's brought I think horror to a lot of folks who maybe thought that they couldn't do it. But in a certain respect, when you talk to the like hardcore horror heads, they kind of look at him sort of the same way magicians maybe looked at David Copperfield. It's like, yeah, you brought many people over, but like show us really what like show them what it's really about. And maybe this was, was that. Peaches, as a filmmaker, do you feel some of that in this? Is like James Wan trying to give back to the horror community because maybe that some people saw him a bit of a more commercial.
3: Yes, a hundred percent. I mean, that's exactly, you know, what I was saying about the score where, you know, I, this is the, the movie that's impressed me the most by him. And it's the movie where I'm like, oh, you are cool. You know, and I think that was like the, the sort of desired effect was like, there, there's a confidence to the style and the tone of this film because it's unusual because it's referencing you know Italian cinema and and things you know in, in the genre world that that are uh, more obscure. If you are um, let's say a more basic horror fan and you go into this movie and you watch that flashback you know the movie opens with a a big flashback it is so over the top it's so camp you know it's got element it's got a creature in it that you don't understand it's got really camp performances the style of it is insane Almost looks like a comic book in a way. Um, I think there were probably James Bond fans who were like, "Nope, this isn't. This isn't for me." You know, I don't. I don't want this. And the other thing is, you know, I commend the lead. Um, I forget her name, but the lead actor's uh, performance because it's very committed to a strange style of performance. It almost it's almost melodrama. It yeah. almost goes too far. And you know, I think for a lot of people. That those sorts of risks, you know, are too uncomfortable because they're outside of the wheelhouse of of what they're used to. Of course, I loved it. Like that's actually what made me go, oh, this is great. You Mm -hmm. know?
2: That's a very that's an interesting point because Annabelle Wallace playing Madison in in this in this role. I think that the two words you hit on were confidence and then also like a unique style of playing a lead character. The other film genre that I love that you'll see that in is spoof movies is, is movies that are that are sort of uh, not taking themselves seriously by taking them themselves and their performances so seriously, and I think that that might have been one of the other reasons. Jacqueline, going back to your question about the audience score, maybe why audiences were turned off is because audiences maybe couldn't really tell: is this movie making fun of itself or is this movie taking it seriously? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fair question. I, it, enjoyable it, whether it is you know making fun of itself or whether it's it's taking everything so so. So seriously, but I think it's a fair question. And sometimes us audiences just want to be able to categorize stuff in a neater box.
0: Yeah. The last movie, I think, that put audiences on their heels as far as not not letting them know what to think about it, because, again, I think people very much knew what they think about it. But definitely not not letting them know what they were getting into was probably Cabin in the Woods or the mm. next Drew Goddard mm. film, uh, Bad Times at the oh, at the Royale or whatever, whatever it is, like, that, the movie that he did with Hemsworth a little while after that. Both of those movies, also like Crimson Peak is another example. It's like, I just don't know if what was presented is what you think you got at certain points within the narrative. And sometimes audiences just don't forgive you for that, even if the movie that you end up getting is something overall enjoyable mother is another example of that i think the movie mother with uh with yes for sure uh it's funny we brought up annabelle wallace because it's so she's like kind of british royalty in the sense like her family is the richard harris like the first dumbledore Mm -hmm. and jared harris from like chernobyl pretty you know that's like literally her family and very yeah very very that And she's, like, done nothing but, like, big, campy, I would say, sort of like she did Silent Night with um, the kid from Jojo Rabbit. His mom directed that, uh, Camille Griffin-Davis. She's now doing this. It's interesting seeing the girl that was basically on pace to be the next Zoe Saldana as far as, like, being a part of these big genre movies when she got cast alongside um, Tom Cruise and The Mummy because if you look at like a lot of people after that, you know, um, Rosamund Pike, um, Rebecca Ferguson, a lot of people when they star alongside Tom Cruise like that can really catapult. And she's kind of gone the other direction. So I don't know. What about you, Peaches? What do you think about her in this? Because she's almost too pretty to be in this kind of a horror movie. And I say that with like every ounce of humility it say is it's just like this is just such a gruff and tumble thing. They honestly don't like People that have the look that she has in this are you saying she's too to pretty
2: it. to have a head inside of her? Jacqueline?
0: No, I. It's it's kind of that, like, and maybe that was the dichotomy. Maybe that's the point. Make this like model-like figure get destroyed, but it, it's it was a choice. Her casting.
3: I I think it was because I actually uh, I'm I'm not a big fan of having supermodels play scream queens, which of course you know was something that like became. Uh, popular in the the nineties and two thousands when I was casting all about evil. I remember, um, you know, the casting director kept bringing me people for leads and I'm like, you know, not, not that Natasha Lyonne isn't gorgeous. She is, but you know, I grew up with Shelley Duvall and the shining, you know, Sissy Spacek and Carrie, you know, people that women that looked real, you know, yeah. and and unique. Um, and so when this started again, I had this expectation of like kind of a little bit of an eye roll, you know. Of co- okay, she's gorgeous, you know. Um, but by the end of the movie, I was like, oh, I get it, because it auto worked with your it it messed with your expectations and so you know when you discover that she's actually you know also hideous and terrifying and you know and and that scene in the jail cell you know just so incredible you know where they put her in that environment and uh oh I I think it was brilliant I think again he used your expectations um against you and uh and it paid off you know we were all duped in a way and she's brilliant. I actually loved her performance. At the beginning of the film, again, I was kind of like, is this good? Like, is, uh, <laughs> it, what is happening here? You know, what is going on? Is this melodrama? Like, I don't get it, you know? And by yeah. the end of the movie, I was like, oh, it's genius. You know, she yeah. was wonderful. And we were all just played like a fiddle. Yeah.
2: And I love that conversation that she has with uh, with Sydney when they're talking about Her being adopted and just, and that sort of revelation. I think that's a real, that's a powerful moment in the film. For me, and I think that that's a sort of a, a touchstone moment for audiences. Like, if you are now, if you weren't rooting for these characters before, I don't know how that scene hits you, but that definitely locked me into caring about them as people and wanting to see this thing through, wanting to see exactly what the hell's going on. But, Jacqueline, also on the performance note, I, I, at least for me in horror movies, I need some sort of anchor point where I feel like somebody's on the same page as me, especially when it's a mystery that's evolving. And I thought both of the, the detectives, in this movie, George Young and McCole Brianna White, I believe, are, are the names of the performers. I thought they were tremendous as far as like they're a couple steps behind. So am I. The three of us should be friends.
0: Yeah, no, I really did dig them. Um, I will say even more than digging them, though, the sister was anyone else immediately suspicious of her because she's basically a Disney adult. Yeah. Like immediately I was like, this bitch (laughs) is gaslighting her somehow. She's poisoning her food like and that is another (laughs) example of how well this was written with red herrings. There are red herrings all over this movie, because really, when you think about it, it's a pretty basic plot. It's a standard embedded presence movie. Like we've seen tons of these. I mean, in a certain way, the fly is an example of this. Right. You know what I mean? Like these like something is inside me and it's turning me into a monster metamorphosis type stuff. So once you have, I think that you kind of have to play with it a lot to make it seem fresh and interesting. And this movie literally from frame one was like, you are not going to know what this movie is. And by the time you know it, you're going to be so just shocked by the fact that we brought you here, you're not gonna question the fact that it is the most basic plot ever. That is my biggest complaint I would say with some people, if you're like a whore head that didn't like it. When you strip away some of the bells and whistles, really, this girl hit her head and the demon inside her awoke. Yeah. That's it. Everything else is a red herring that led you to that very simple sentence. And if you knew or were clued into any of that before the third act, you wouldn't like the movie as much, I think. You would call it basic. So I don't know. Like, next time, just write a basic idea and then hide it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Just hide it deep inside your cerebral cortex. Put it right next to the hypothalamus, just where Gabriel was resting for a long time. I also don't hate the idea of Jacqueline, you as a sleuth in another life, because anytime there's a murder under mysterious circumstances, you're going to want to question any adult who enjoys theme parks a little too much in the immediate area to see what they were doing at the time of question.
0: I think the audience will bear me out. Whatever. I I have some... I say this like I was like, I have a friend who's an alcoholic, but I have a friends who are Disney adults, and I don't have anything against them. You and I them. have the,
2: some of the same friends that are yeah, Disney adults. Yeah, we have some of
0: the same friends who are Disney adults, and I'm talking like <laughs> built careers around being Disney <laughs> adult people. So trust me when I say if you have a Disney adult in your life as a as a normal person, it is nothing compared to our friends that are on YouTube, but hey, I will add The Whip this. is
2: great. The whip <laughs> is fantastic.
0: We, we love them, but I do have to admit, Anybody showing up in a princess costume anywhere, I'm going to look at you twice, three times. I don't care if it's your job. I I
3: assumed that was her job.
0: It is her job, but she showed up in it. And people that do that for a job don't show up in it after they leave. Like, that's a (laughs) uniform.
2: She's in it
0: outside of work.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was part of me. So I have some friends in San Francisco who make a living, you know, um, they're drag performers, but they do like um, dress up as, you know, Peter Pan or Jack Sparrow or whatever and do like children's parties. And they have these little businesses where you can hire them to show up at a birthday party. I assumed that's what she was. And in the, in the, in the panic of getting there on time, she couldn't take, because of course I was like looking at the scene going really No." No, you're not going to go to the hospital and that, you know, Um, but yeah, like I agree with you. I do want to say, though, thinking about your um, your uh, analysis of of, of the the movie that that one thing about this film that's interesting is it's both that sort of body horror, you know, the, the, the monster within the fly, the Cronenberg of it all, but also he very effectively or Kayla, you know, Cooper very effectively did Mid Giallo film because the, the, the real, you know, mystery of it, you know, a great Giallo film has that yeah. mystery. It's really a mystery film. Right. Yeah. And the, the, the fact is I was totally hooked and like what is this who's who is this why is this happening what's going on and you think that you can figure it out based on you know your knowledge of genre and it it tricked me and you know when that woman is you know up in the attic and all the different things that they they did you think it's going this direction and i have to give credit to kayla cooper that screenplay was solid i mean it moves you're never bored um and and it is it's a mystery film
0: Well, I mean, I have to ask you about your film, too, because the thing I will say with that is, is you have to be a study of the art form to parody it. You have to be a study of the art form to subvert it or to expand it. And honestly, in horror, just to get through, get by, have a film that somebody like Shudder says, hey, we want to put you up. You also have to do those things. So talk about your approach with your film and more importantly, uh, how you got Natasha Leone to sign up for all about evil.
3: (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, I, you know, I was running um, movies in a movie theater. I was a, I was a manager of a movie theater and as peaches, I did a midnight movie series, a cult movie event called midnight mass. And, um, and the writing was on the wall, like single screen movie theaters in San Francisco and across the country were closing down all around us. And so my anxiety around losing these old movie theaters is what led me to create the story of what, what should we do to, in order to save these, you know, movie houses. And, you know, the answer in my movie is murder, I guess. Um, So, you know, uh, that's what drove it. But, but the, the, the movies I was sending up were, were old grindhouse exploitation films, the films of Gordon Lewis, especially, and Ted B. Michaels. Um, But, but really there was a woman Doris Wishman, who made these movies and said, if men can do it, I can do it, too. Why should they exploit women and all the money? I can exploit women, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, I loved that. I thought, oh, that's so twisted and awesome and really this weird kind of feminism in a way. Um, And so I, I, I was lucky that I had a director of photography who shot the movie The Slums of Beverly Hills. Tom Richmond, who's brilliant. He's shot so many amazing movies. Um, and, and he said, well, we, we, are still without a Deborah, my lead. He said, who's your first choice? I said, God, if I could have anybody, it would be Natasha Leone. And he pulls out his cell phone and calls her up and says, I'm sitting with this filmmaker. And I think you'd like a script and hands her the phone. And I start to pitch her the movie and start to explain who Doris Wishman is. And before I can get her name out of my mouth, Natasha interrupts me and says, oh, Doris Wishman. And I'm like, oh, you, you know who Doris Wishman is? Wow. And she says, oh, I know Doris. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you have to read my script. You have to read my script, you know. And she did. And then she signed on to do the movie. And oh, Natasha, well, well, yeah, well, big movie star. Even when she did my movie, she had already done all the American Pie movies. and But I'm a cheerleader in this but she New York, and she's she's grown up with drag queens she she already was in die Mommy die with Charles Bush and drag yeah. she was in Party Monster like yep. she many, many actors would have been afraid to work with me, you know, and she actually was like, oh, no, no. That's a credit to you that you're a drag queen.
0: (laughs) Well, because she knew before RuPaul's drag race proved to everyone, drag performers, it's always the funniest thing in the world when I see these people, they're like, maybe they see a a performer on a show and then they see them later be like, oh my God, she's really talented. I'm like, that's TV. And anyone who is working as a drag performer five nights a week has developed a repertoire. It's like anybody working as a comic for 20 years, Like, Mark, yeah, he knows how to handle a heckler. You're not going to throw him anything. Like, a drag queen handles bridesmaids drunk on a Friday evening and gets them in and out. He can handle a grip on an attitude. She can handle a grip on an attitude. You know what I mean? (laughs)
2: And that's why I love uh, that's why I love watching. We're here. It's because it it really does show the performance aspect of just barnstorming a town, showing up and being like, we're going to give you the best show you've ever seen. And then just the comic in me is watching it and just thinking about all the elements that I think of when I go to a town that isn't necessarily, you know, housing an improv where it's just sort of, okay. this is how the stand up works. It's like you have to set everything up yourself and and I also got feelings of that though Peach is watching this movie just because it does act as sort of a love letter to those movie theaters that aren't the big multiplexes like you know if I want to go see Top Gun Maverick I'm probably going IMAX Dolby whatever but sometimes those those smaller theaters are the ones where you want to go see a horror movie where you want to feel creeped out with a packed house and so i definitely felt the love of those style movie theater like the new beverly i guess you would say in la That's oh, yeah. sort of the vibe i got watching this movie
3: a hundred percent i mean a hundred percent and yeah all of that stuff i mean uh, you know drag queens in um stand-up comedians uh, have a lot in common exotic dancers a lot in common like we are in the trenches we know how to handle shit you know we 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 don't buckle under pressure and um you know that that those skills like you said c- can translate very well in a movie set you know um and it, you do not want a director who's going to um not be able to handle stress <laughs>
0: <laughs> not going to be able to handle stress and it, handle it effectively it's like yeah, anybody can handle stress and throw something through a wall, but like the idea <laughs> is being able to handle stress in a productive manner. Again, I use the bride, the drunk bridesmaids is a perfect example because there's nothing you really want to get more escalated than a group of drunk women thinking they're entitled to a good time. But if you can for both drag that, performers
2: and comedians and that, comedians, that, 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 that goes oh my god, both. yeah, <laughs> you
0: guys, I feel like this should have just been the two of you complaining <laughs> this about is a
2: therapy session for peaches and.
0: The women that come and invade your your various shows and make them difficult. Peaches, we can talk about this forever, but I definitely want to talk about the film in the sense of the moment that horror is having and the moment that I would say performers like Natasha have in it, because I think like she, more than anyone, when I I say this and I hope that people will take offense, she is someone that lives in drag in the sense that she very much (laughs) lives her life. In a certain level of performance. And I think it is authentic. And mm-hmm. I would say that there's a lot of people that do that. John Waters is an example of this. John is just being John Waters, but he yes. lived his life in drag. And as much so as Shangela or You Peaches, but talk about how that that moment is that the horror moment is having too. Like, who are these people that are sort of like living their life in horror? And like, how are you guys are finding each other on places like Shudder?
3: Wow. That is okay, Jacqueline, I have to commend you because as someone who grew up obsessed with John Waters and is now friends with John Waters, I've tried to describe that like Cassandra (laughs) and I Cassandra, Elvira and I can go out into the world out of drag and not be recognized. Now, John, you know, he has that pencil thin mustache. He has that style. Natasha has that hair you know and the voice and the uh you know the 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 wry wit and you're right they they kind of embody living as a as a character and it is authentic they are those people you know but when I go out with John you know if John and I go to lunch I mean no one especially if it's San Francisco or New York or something like no one can take their eyes off him you know because he's sitting there in the room and Natasha is the same way and um yeah, I think that the interesting thing about Natasha for me has been um, how much of her actual persona, you know, the actual Natasha is so bizarre and so, so wonderfully you know, I mean, she plays a crazy character in my movie. I'm like, oh, yeah, but that that's nothing like hanging out with Natasha. You know, <laughs> Natasha's, you know, just one of the wildest, most unique. She's literally one of the smartest, if not the smartest people I've ever met. You know, she's just, you know, genius. And um, yeah, I, I think this moment that we're having as far as uh, communities like Shudder and I, I'm a fan of Shudder, like before Shudder, you know, um, you know, kind of embraced me everyone's tried a horror network right like we've seen this over and over again all about evil originally was on a network called chiller which yeah. was nbc universal's um version of shutter i have to say sam zimmerman and amc have done such an incredible job with shutter that if you're not paying whatever that low rate is it's like five or six dollars a month like do yourself a favor it is so well curated um and then the fact that like I'm on Dragula, which is on Shudder. Yeah. I'm uh, in a series called uh, Behind the Monsters, which is on Shudder. I'm in the Scream Queen documentary, which is on Shudder. Like I am thrilled that All About Evil ended up at Shudder. Yeah. Uh, Cause that's really where my, the audience for All About Evil is the Shudder audience.
0: No, I really do love that. And I and I hope folks will definitely if you don't have a subscription, grab that free trial. Trust me, you will not want to cancel it afterwards. You will find your next great watch. And it is a perfect horror. Great gateway drug. Think of that as your first hit get 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 shutter watch all about evil and then just keep going peaches this has been so great to chat with you about this film and your just love of horror and thank you for making me watch malignant because I will have to admit here now <laughs> I had not seen it before we were doing this and I thank you for giving me oh, that wow, moment.
2: you were given you were giving me crap for for being like Mark when did you first discover it? you hadn't even seen it
0: no I hadn't but this is the <laughs> difference I saved mine to the end
2: yep nope you're better at this than I am. <laughs> Because
0: that is what a petty girl will do. And I learned that (laughs) from a gay man like everyone else.
2: (laughs) Perfect.
3: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Thank you for being here. All right, everyone. That, of course, was Peaches Christ, filmmaker and drag performer. You can check out All About Evil, starring Natasha Leone on Shutter Right now, that was so much fun, Mark. I really enjoyed it.
2: Yeah. And, you know, thinking about that first scene where we meet Madison's sister and then, you know, Peach is talking about growing up in an area where you'd have a lot of performers in drag, just like walking around doing normal things. I kind of come from a similar background because I, I, I spent part of my formative years in Colonial Williamsburg, where you'll see like the old timey like blacksmith and stuff. And they're just at Food Lion you yeah. are just filled up gas, and it's like, well, mm-hmm. okay, and so it's just kind of something you accept over time. So maybe that's why I just didn't really bat an eye, and I didn't assume that this Disney adult was out to murder her adopted. <laughs> no, and like maybe,
0: and again, maybe this says something about me because immediately I was like, basically, anyone who is too into anything, I worry about you. That's it, mm, that's it, yeah. I just worry about you. But it turns out she was great and I was putting some of my own biases in that, which we don't <laughs> want folks to do. We want them to come here and argue about it on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. <laughs> that's why we have this podcast. It's a safe but, space. But as amazingly that, as that is in this fun safe space, I cannot believe I'm gonna say this, but we're approaching our 100th episode, y'all. We've done this a hundred times. We've done it more than that. Y'all just haven't seen all of it. But Uh. we've definitely done it at least a (laughs) hundred times and our anniversary for that is coming up. So in honor of that, we want you guys to go ahead and send us a quick clip, maybe 30 seconds to one minute, telling us your favorite movie that you think Rotten Tomatoes is wrong about. I've literally been doing this for an entire year. You can do it for 30 seconds because if you are passionate enough, we definitely want to include you in our hundredth episode, which is coming up soon. So... Get your videos together and then just email us anything you want us to cover. You know, at Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. And wherever you're listening to this or watching this, be sure to subscribe, rate, review and tell, tell, tell your friends. Mark, what do we have coming up next week?
2: We are switching gears into the world of television, streaming TV in this particular case, talking about, you know how the MCU is like all those big movies? Well, there's also streaming shows and they're gaining in popularity. And a lot of people love talking about them. They kicked off with WandaVision. Now we have Miss Marvel and She-Hulk coming out later on this year. And so there's a lot of MCU TV to discuss. We're going to be ranking our favorite to least favorite. Where are you going, Loki? Where do you think you're going?
0: Where do you think you're going?
2: Yeah. What's the Next next week?
0: What's the next show that's coming out?
2: Uh, I believe it's going to be now that we have Miss Marvel underway. I think She-Hulk is in August. She Hulk, yeah. yeah, She-Hulk
0: is in August. All right. So we're going to we're going to get ahead before She-Hulk. Everything up until then. All right, folks, tune in for that next week. And we'll see you next time on Rotten Tomatoes is Raw.